have the right affections, right? Have your things in the right order. We worship God, and we love people, and I love my wife, and we manage things, right? Things that are going to go the way of this world. That, you know, it's going to be rusty like my truck out in the parking lot right now eventually. So to keep those things in right perspective. Um, and again, God testing me saying, okay, Nathan, are you really thankful now? So, and I am. And I'm thankful for him, I'm thankful for my wife, and I'm thankful for his goodness to us. And for a truck that has a dent, then it just reminds me it's just a truck, right? So, integrity. Integrity. It comes from the idea that the sum of the parts are rightly integrated or rightly relating to the whole. That is, that they're unified. In people, especially leaders, we appreciate it, when we see a consistency between position and performance, right? That you're doing what you've been charged to do. You're doing your job. You're not doing something else or doing something that you're not assigned to do. We appreciate it when we see a consistency between profession and practice. When you act in a manner that's consistent with what you say, what you believe, that you do what you say. We want to see that in our pastors. We want to see that in politicians. We want to see it in bosses and employees, teachers and students, husbands and wives, parents and children. We want to see it in everyone. We want to see integrity. Be who you say that you are. When it comes to dealing with objects or things or a body, it has to do with the parts rightly working together so that there are no breaches, no cracks, no threat of things falling apart, not holding together. This last week I was watching the uh, reboot of Star Trek from 2019 where you kind of find out how James Tiberius Kirk came to be and all those things, right? But there's a certain point where the Starship Enterprise finds itself coming out of warp speed to face these Romulan aliens who were from the future, and they're just being overwhelmed. And of course, Mr. Chekhov says this, Captain, the integrity of the whole is compromised. And what he's basically saying is, we take one more shot, and this thing's going to fall apart because there are cracks. There is a lack of integrity here. And that's what we're going to see in the people of God today as we're back in Nehemiah. So if you have your Bibles, you might want to crack your Bible up, uh, open to chapter 5. But in an effort to rebuild the wall, all the people coming together, compromise started to rear its ugly head. Some members of the people of God who were working together, we're all this together, uh, to build this wall, they're not treating the other people of the members of the house of God well. They're wrongly treating them. And if someone does not intervene or something doesn't change, things are going to quickly fall apart. Remember, they're trying to rebuild this wall together. It's true for them, and it's true for us. 
So we're going to see how a lack of integrity needs to be addressed. So let me pray, and then we'll get into God's Word today. So Father, we are grateful again for this past Thanksgiving season. You have been faithful, you've been kind, and you're faithful to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now as we head into this season of Advent, where we remember that you sent your Son for us, I pray, Lord, that you would give us grateful hearts. And now as we look into your Word of your old covenant people, we pray that you'll see, help us to see um, what you have for us here. And we, we pray that you'll help us to see the promise of a new covenant that comes to us in your Lord Jesus. So we pray, Lord, that you'll open the eyes of our hearts that we might receive what you have for us in your word, which is God-breathed. And Lord Jesus, it's in your precious name I pray these things. Amen. So last time we were in Nehemiah, we were in chapters 3 and 4. And we see that God raised up people of all sorts in the people of God. People who were priests, who were artisans, who were uh, goldsmiths, who uh, you know, worked in the temple. All of them were working on the wall to build it back up in order that they not, might not be no longer vulnerable and they might not be in disgrace. And they reached success. They got it halfway built. Then a few things set in. Fatigue. And just being surely overwhelmed by all the rubble and all the stuff that needed to be still restored. But also, they were dealing with threats from the outside and they had to make adjustments. They had to put guards with the people who were building the construction. And everyone was carrying a sword. And the workers were no longer allowed to come and go in and out of the city. Everyone had to stay in the city in order to work during the day and help guard at night. Within all this, though, Nehemiah reminds them that they are God's people. That God had called them to do this. That God was going to be with them. He was going to help them. He was going to protect them. He was going to fight for them. And again... The result was they got halfway there. They built the wall halfway. But what happens next threatens to derail all that they've done up to this point. Completely divide the people because of a lapse of integrity. And so here's where we pick up the story. And the first thing we see, even in, in the first few verses of chapter 5, is exploitation. Exploitation. And you see, watch as, watch as the, the case gets built here, it starts out with just kind of itemized stuff, but they all kind of interlap with each other. Listen to this. Verse 1 of 5. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and although our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. So do you see what's happening here? 
They're vulnerable people with various needs, right? They can't leave the wall to go, you know, tend to their fields and vineyards so they can make income. And they're being taken advantage of by wealthier people who are loaning them money at interest rates, high interest rates. They're buying up their fields, their vineyards, their houses, their lands, so they have no future means for income. They're buying up their children to secure debt and putting them to work in their own houses, or even worse, selling them to other nations that they might be sold away somewhere, and they have no means of redeeming these these children from debt. And who's doing this? Who's doing this? The fellow Jews. The fellow people of God. And you know who they are? If we look at verse 7, they're the nobles and the officials. They're the leaders of the people. I don't know about you, but I think that's a lack of integrity. Do the people exist for the leaders? Or do the leaders exist for the people? I think it's the latter. And so does Nehemiah. What they were doing was a lapse or a lack of integrity. And so this leads to a confrontation. Look at verses 6 through 10. When I heard their outcry, these charges, I was angry. And he had a truckload of reasons to be angry, and we'll see why. But here's the thing. He doesn't give full vent to his anger. He says, continuing on, verse 7, I pondered them in my mind, because he wasn't going to blast them. He needed a game plan. He wasn't going to form a council of leaders, because the leaders, charging the leaders, probably wouldn't be a a very uh, fair process. He wasn't going to go to them privately either. Because this was a public issue. It's affecting everybody. And so it's a serious situation, and Nehemiah has to go public. So continuing on, he said, I pondered them in my mind, and then I accused the nobles and officials, and I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them. And I said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. You see even more of a problem here? The community, they're pooling their resources together to buy back Jews who have been sold to the nations. Now to buy them back so they could be free And then when they go into debt, these Jewish leaders are selling them back into slavery. These leaders were doing it for their own gain. The idea here is just for to live in a community where we're freed from bondage. They're doing this at the cost of others, at the cost of the community. That seems like a lack of integrity, does it not? You're supposed to be leading the people. You're supposed to be for the people, not taking advantage of them. And the 
end of verse 8, it says, they kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. They're guilty, and they know it. They know what they did was wrong. And just think about this. What's at stake here? First of all, there's just the issue of just feeding people who, who have no means to feed themselves, right? Second of all, there are people who are being entrapped in years of debt. Slavery again. And people are tempted to say, hey, if this is the way it's going to be, I'm leaving. I'm going to take my chances outside of the wall and go back to my farm and take care of my land. And then there's just the area issue of the vulnerability of these kids who are being sold into slavery. You know, human trafficking. This is happening. Once that a daughter is sold, you know what? Anything can happen to that, that child. And, and, you know, they could be sold to a nation and sold halfway across the world and be never seen again. But most of all, the biggest issue is what had happened to the hearts of these leaders? What had happened to the hearts of these leaders? All of a sudden, money and possessions has become their idol instead of God being their God. Life is not found in your possessions. It's found in God himself. What a terrible thing. And Nehemiah has to respond. So it says in verse 9, So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in fear of our God? Again, what they were doing was probably legal as far as the Persian Empire was concerned. Remember, the Persian Empire has control of all this area, but not according to God's word. And let me just give you a sample size of what God had commanded in his Torah or his law. Deuteronomy chapter 15 verses uh, 7 through 8. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not harden, do not be hardened or tight-fisted towards them. Rather be open-handed and freely lend to them whatever they need. Deuteronomy chapter 23 verses 19 through 20. Do not charge a fellow Israelite interest whether on money or food or anything else that may earn interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but not a fellow Israelite, so that the Lord your God may bless you in everything you do and, and you put your hand to in the land you are entering to possess. God's command is to lend freely and generously, not charge interest to your fellow Jewish brothers and sisters, because the Lord is generous and gracious. And here's something else I want you to know. And this is kind of a spoiler alert when we get to the the next chapter. The building of this wall is a miracle. It only takes 52 days. So we may be halfway into this project, 30 days. This is not long outstanding debt. This is maybe a month old debt. Maybe. But these leaders are quickly pouncing on the opportunity to take advantage of these people who are vulnerable. And by the way, what about the command in Leviticus chapter 19, 18, to love your neighbor as yourself? Is that happening here? No. It's a lack of integrity. 
and he commands them in the fear of the Lord, here in light of his word, but also in light of his reputation, of God's reputation, to fear the Lord and to avoid, second half of verse 9, the reproach of our Gentile enemies. As they're looking in and seeing what's happening, going, so that's what it means to be the people of God, huh? Wow, that's amazing. Sarcasm included. Devouring each other for profit. No, God's reputation is on the line here. How are we representing him? You know, and as I, I read this passage, I ask the question, for us who follow Christ, who are in that, that new covenant, how about you, how about me? When it comes to our financial dealings, do we have a double standard? Do we try and represent Christ well in how we interact with people, doing things fairly, honestly, even being gracious with the things that we have? Or do we hide under the rubric of it's just business? It's just business. And use that as a reason to justify taking advantage of others. Trying to use financial cunning because we have an overdeveloped sense of competition. I've got to win in this deal. That's not the heart of Christ. And that leaves loving others at the door. Again, I ask the question, how do we reflect Christ? And, and ask me the question, again, how do we relate to our, our possessions? Do we view it as something that God has given us? Graciously, and you, yes, you may have worked hard for it, but it's still God's gift. Do you view it as something He's given you to invest in His kingdom for His glory? To show his character even. Or do you view it as something like, man, I've got this. Man, I'm just going to use it to, to generate more and more and more wealth for myself. Again, Jesus would say a man's life does not, is not comprised of the things he owns. Money is not your life. God is. And we should use that money that he's given us, those possessions he's given us, for his purposes. The Lord Jesus would tell us in Matthew 6.21 that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. These leaders had their hearts in the wrong place. But Nehemiah had other use for his wealth. He was desiring to show integrity as a leader. So in verse 10 it says, And my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But they're doing so to come alongside of the people. There's no mention of holding on to land for collateral, no selling of people into debtor slavery. They're loaning to help the others. But then Nehemiah makes this charge in the second half of verse 10. But let us stop charging interest. Let us stop charging interest. This should be the practice of all of us leaders. And this leads to restoration. Verses 11 through 13. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, 
olive groves and houses, and also the interest you are charging them. 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. To restore to the people not only their property for generating income, but also part of the interest and produce of the grain, wine, and oil. And the good news is, the leaders complied. They said, yeah, that's right. We should do that. They turn around. They repent from their lack of integrity, from their sin. And they say in verse 12, we will give back. Give it back, they said. And we will not demand anything more from them. And we will do as you say. Well, it's one thing to say you're going to do that. It's another to, to actually do it. And, and Nehemiah realizes these, these leaders need to be held accountable before God and before the people. So in the second half of verse 12, he says, Then I summoned the priest and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they said they had promised. But then Nehemiah takes things one step further with a physical demonstration or illustration for those who wouldn't keep their word. A visible curse, if you will. Verse 13. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, May in this way God shake out of of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep his promise. So may a person be shaken out and emptied. At this whole assembly, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. You see an old... Testament or uh, uh, first century culture, oftentimes people had folds in their garments like pockets, right? That's where they kept their whatever they were keeping, handkerchief, whatever. But then you'd stretch it out and empty it out, then you were empty. This is what Nehemiah said God would do to the person who did not keep their word on this. This is not empty words. Saying God is going to be in charge of enforcing this word. God's going to do it. So keep your word. And, you know, it was the the worst, I guess, fate possible for these wealthy Jews. That they would lose all their possessions. They'd be emptied out, if you will, but then be emptied out of the people of God as well. God was a guarantor of this oath. But again, the issue is integrity. Living out the office as a leader and living out your faith. And again, now this needs to be seen, not just talked about. What they need is an incarnation, a living version of this. So in verse 14, we find this out. Moreover, from the 12th year, 20, excuse me, the 20th year of Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until the 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate food allotted to the governor. Now this is, this is new information if you've just been reading along here. If you, if you read ahead, you find out, oh, he was, actually came and became governor from the very outset. But as governor, Nehemiah is the representative of King Artaxerxes, 
the most powerful man in the world of the time. And he has a lot of power. How was he going to use it? And so in verse 15, he says this, But the earlier governors, those preceding me, they placed a heavy burden on the people and took, 40, and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants, not only the governor, but his cronies below him, their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. You see, the governor was fleecing the people, and so were his cronies under him. But Nehemiah says, I'm not going to use my position for self-gain because of my fear of God, my reverence for him. It says in verse 16, Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work, and we did not acquire any land. See, Nehemiah remembers the reason he came. The vision that God had put upon his heart to come back and rebuild a destroyed wall in order that the people might not be vulnerable, in order that they might not be in distress or disgrace. He came there to do God's mission and to rebuild the wall for the welfare of the people. And did you notice the last line? And we did not acquire any land. He didn't come there to build up his own little empire. He didn't come there to take advantage of a, of a real estate opportunity. He came there to do God's will, to build his kingdom. Then it continues in verse 17. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and Every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. See, as a Persian governor, he was obligated to show hospitality, generosity to local leaders, to people around him, to to the... uh, visiting ambassadors from other provinces. He was obligated to host about 150 people a day. Think about if you're a father who has married off a daughter. It's like a a wedding reception every day for the rest of your life for 12 years. One ox for 12 years. That's 4,380 oxen. Six choice sheep. That's 26,280 sheep. Poultry. Well, I think it was just whatever they could capture in the countryside. But abundant wine of every kind, every 10 days. Who paid for this? It wasn't the people. He says they were already heavily burdened. I'm I'm not going to do that to them. It was Nehemiah himself. The steward, the wine steward of the king, out of his own pocket, who left the glory of Artaxerxes' kingdom to come to a rubble-ridden town to rebuild the wall, to rebuild a wall, a city that's in ruin. 
And as governor, he used his own resources to feed the people, to help them with debt. Out of his own pocket, he, he maintained the governor's table because the strain was too great on the people. He embodied integrity. He serves as governor to serve the Lord and for the sake of the people. And this is what he says at the end of this chapter. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. Lord, remember me. I've not come here to acquire my own kingdom here in Jerusalem. I've come to build your kingdom, to do your will. Remember me as I have remembered you. Now, I don't know about you, but this is, a, this is a great story. This is a great story because, you know, instead of rebelling, the, the leaders say, yeah, you're right, and they do what's right. They restore their integrity. It's, a, it's kind of a feel-good story. The people all stay together. But, you know, as I'm looking at this story, it points to a greater governor, a greater savior if you will. One who comes to do God's will, one who comes for the sake of the people. You see, just as Nehemiah left the glory of the court for Artaxerxes, Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he leads, he leaves the courts of heaven to put on flesh and dwell among us. And if you know the story of Jesus, he doesn't come to be born in a palace, to come and build his own kingdom, to build his own brand. In fact, he acts as a servant. He's basically born into a family of common people. He comes because you and I lack integrity. We lack integrity. We're not able to live out in obedience what we know about a holy God. And sometimes we don't even want to do so. But he came because we lack integrity. We stood condemned in our spiritual poverty. We were in distress, we were vulnerable, and we are being sold into slavery and debt because of our bondage to sin and death. And we needed a Redeemer. But Jesus comes. And He comes to pay the price that we need to get out of debt Himself. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus that though he was rich, for your sake became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. It's the story of the cross. He comes to pay our redemption price, to satisfy God's justice. Again, he doesn't come to be adored or build his own kingdom, but to do the will of his Father. To buy back men and women to himself. To change their hearts. And he pays the price not 
out of his pocketbook, but with his own life, with his own blood, to give us life that we don't have in ourselves. And to rescue us from being vulnerable to Satan and eternal destruction. And for those who put their faith in him, now you have his righteousness. Your integrity before a holy God is restored. That's how I see this Old Testament story relating to what God would ultimately bring about. That God made him, that is Jesus Christ, who knew no sin to become sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God. He's the one who showed the ultimate amount of integrity. So here's my question. Just as Nehemiah invited many people to come to his table, have you come to the table of the Lord Jesus Christ? Which he paid for himself with his own blood. But have you come to be transformed to be changed, to have life in Him that you don't have in yourself, and to be pulled out of the debt of being a slave to sin and death, and to be restored, to have integrity before a holy God. Maybe you haven't done that, but maybe today is the day. What a great thing to celebrate as we head into this Christmas season that someone would be rightly restored to the living God who sent his governor, if you will, to restore us to himself at his own cost. What a great thing to celebrate. Let me pray for us. Then Bobby and the worship team, will you come and close us? And so, my friend, if that's you today, if you need to put your faith in Jesus for what he's done and coming to live a life that you couldn't live in perfect obedience and paying a price for sin by dying on the cross and then rising from the dead to give life that we don't have in ourselves and giving us a future. If that's you, I want to remind you of these truths from God's word. That God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For to as many as received him, even those who believe in his name, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. If that's you, my friend, brother, or sister, Just respond. Respond by confessing that you have sinned against the Holy God and that you need to be saved. You need to ask the Lord Jesus to come into your heart and He will do the changing. He will do the, do the rearranging. He will help you repent and turn back towards Him. If that's you, I, I just ask you to pray in your heart. These words are not magic. They are just the expression of a sincere heart. 
Lord Jesus, I thank you for coming for me. I know I'm a sinner. I know I stand in debt to a holy God and deserve your punishment. But come now into my heart. I receive you for what you've done by dying for me, by rising from the dead. Come make me your child. Come make me your son. Come make me your daughter. That I might know the life that you have for me. It starts now, today, and goes for eternity. Lord Jesus, come and reign and rule in me. And Lord, for the rest of us, we want to be people of integrity. We want to be lining up our lives in light of who you are, Lord Jesus. Again, with gratitude, because you came and saved us. You came to seek and save the lost, and that is all of us. And we need you, Lord Jesus. We need you every day. But come and live your life in us and through us. And help us to live a life that is not a contradiction, but is in line with your word, in line with who you are, knowing that you are our life and nothing else is. And we can trust you with our things. We can trust you with our lives. And we can trust you in all circumstances. So make us, Lord Jesus, men and women of integrity. That we are rightly connected to you, Lord Jesus, our head, our Savior, our Lord. It's in your name I pray these things. Amen.